are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Well, hey, good morning. How are you this day? Good. Um, So as Pastor Rick had mentioned in the video, my name is Dan, and uh, my family and I moved here about three months ago. And so one of the questions that we get almost every single Sunday when we're here. I've already had it a couple times this morning. But the question that we get is, you know, how are you guys settling in? How has the transition been going? And I will say this, um, we, have, we are quickly learning to love this church and this city. And that is because many of you have gone out of your way to really give us a warm welcome. But we're, we're gathering and kind of gaining stories. And I, and I really think in the short amount of time that we've been here, we're starting to make memories that I think will last with us for a while. I want to share one of those stories with you as we start. Um, This happened to us about a month and a half ago, where Whitney and I, we were um, leaving church on a Sunday morning. We had picked up the kids from Children's Church, and we're heading out the north entrance. And on that Sunday, it was raining. And so I did what you're supposed to do as a good husband, right? You go out, You get the car, and you get in line, and you come to pick up your wife at the door. So I tell Whitney, you wait here, let me go get the car. And I go out, grab the car, I get in kind of the pickup line, because there are plenty of good husbands here who are doing the same thing. And so I'm about three or four cars back from the doors of the north entrance, and I'm looking out my front window, and I start to kind of see out of the corner of my eye, there's someone getting close to my car. I don't really know who it is. I've only been here a month and a half. I've never met this person before. But she goes to then open up the door. And in that moment, have you ever had those times where things start to kind of slow down and it feels like everything's happening in slow motion because you're trying to make sense of what's happening and so you're, you're, everything's firing and you're trying to make sense of what's going on? That's exactly what was happening for me in that moment. Because in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've heard that Okies are really friendly. They're really hospitable. They're really welcoming. And so maybe this person is just wanting to open up the door, poke their head in, and say, Hi, I'm so-and-so. I know that you're the new pastor. I wanted to welcome you to BFC. But that's not what happened. She doesn't open the door and poke her head in. She opens the door, and she begins to step into the car. And that's when I realized, Okies are friendlier than what I thought. You get in random people's cars. And so she begins to sit down, and everything is still firing. I'm trying to make sense of what's happening here. And I don't know, maybe this person is a jokester, and this person is just trying to play a joke on the new pastor. So maybe I'll go along with it. But then I'm also thinking she, she puts her bag down on the floor of my car, her purse. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what's in that purse. And we're in Oklahoma. I don't know if she's packing heat. I don't know what's going on. So then I just do what everyone does. When you're in kind of like an uncomfortable situation, you don't really, really know what the cultural norms are. You just kind of go along with the flow. And so I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, well I don't know what's going to happen, but she's not talking to me, and so I need to break the silence. So I tell her, where are we going? I don't know who you are, but I'll be glad to drop you off somewhere. Where are we going? And that's when she quickly flips her head to me, and she, her eyes are huge, and she says, Oh my goodness, I am so sorry. I thought I was getting in my husband's car. 
She says, my husband has the same car as you. I'm so sorry. And she starts apologizing. And then that's when she says, hi, my name is Andrea Guy. You're the new pastor here. Welcome to BFC. (laughs) So for those of you who have given us a warm welcome, thank you. And to those of you who have given us a quite hilarious welcome, thank you even more. Um, But the reality is we have grown to love this church in a short time, and we've grown to love this city, and uh, we are very blessed and thankful to be here. The transition is going really, really well. Um, Before we made the move, we had shared with a lot of our family and friends that we felt like God was leading us away from Indianapolis. And so at one point when we were sharing this, they began to ask us, where is God leading you? And, And we told them, we think God is maybe leading us to Oklahoma. And we were surprised at how almost every single one of the people that we shared that with all responded in a very similar way. They all responded with this kind of shock where they said, Oklahoma? What is there in Oklahoma? And if you're offended by that question, you should be, because the people who were asking this lived in Indiana. What is there in Indiana? But we have, uh, we, it was good for us to begin to ask and answer those questions. Because I think what moved us here, I really believe that it's the same thing that moves all of us to make the decisions that we make in our lives. It's the same common thing that moves any of us to either move our family, to move and change jobs. It's the same thing that guides us to put our kids in the schools that we put them in. It's the same thing that guides us to marry the spouse that we choose to marry. And it's this one thing. It's hope. I had heard about what God has done here at BFC. And, and, and God has done some phenomenal things here. But what moved us was the hope of what God is doing and what God will do and the hope that we would have to be a part of it. And you can look throughout all of our lives. We put our kids in schools because of the hope of what kind of experience and what we hope they learn in that school. We, we marry the spouse that we marry because of the hope of what kind of life we could cultivate or create with that spouse. We choose the jobs and careers that we work in because of the hope of what kind of impact we could make through that or what kind of fulfillment and purpose we could gain from it. Hope moves us. Hope is the thing, it is the the rope that tethers us to something beyond ourselves. And it moves us to live our lives in certain ways. Optimism is not hope. Optimism is a passive kind of decision or a passive kind of emotion where you choose to be uh, optimistic that uh, this one thing, this is going to end up in a good way. Hope is not passive, hope is active. Hope has a way of moving us to live in ways that the world desperately needs us to live in. Because hope is not just for us as individuals, but I really believe that hope is for the sake of the world. It is not a question of whether or not we will ever have hope. It is a question of where we will put our hope and whether or not we will put our hope in something or someone that is powerful enough to move us in a direction that the world desperately needs us to move in. Hope moves us. It's what moved us here. It's what moves all of us in our lives. 
And it's the one thing that I think we so often forget about. Now, I want to look at a, a passage of Scripture in a book that I find myself coming back to again and again and again for the last probably two to three years. It's the book of Colossians. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you guys, go ahead and open up to the book of Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. But before I get there, let me kind of set the backdrop for this letter for us. Um, Paul is writing to this church that he's never visited. He only knows about this church from the church planter Epaphras, who is Paul's co-laborer. And Epaphras visits Paul in prison, and he tells him about this church in Colossae. And this church, this was a good church. This was a church that you and I would want to be a part of. Paul is, is writing to them, and he's grateful to hear about the faithfulness of this church. But Paul and Epaphras share this kind of concern about the church, because the church is under pressure from two sides. On one side, the church is under the pressure of what it's like to live in a land that is ruled by Rome. Rome is, a, is an empire that promises a certain kind of life to the people in Colossae, as long as you don't rebel against the empire. You can live fairly peacefully in the land, as long as you don't rebel. But Rome was also really good at building roads. And so when roads start coming to your town in that day, your world becomes smaller. And so for this church, this church in Colossae, as their world becomes smaller, there are people from different backgrounds and, and different faiths and traditions that are moving in, and now you have different religions and faiths and customs and cultures that are all kind of rubbing up against each other. And they have this kind of interweaving that's happening among all the faiths. And so the concern that Paul and Epaphras have is that this church would find this pressure to be too much to bear and that they would begin to live in a way where they would look just like all of the other Romans or they would live in a way in which the dominant culture of their world would shape them so much that Jesus would just be one among many other gods that they could serve. You see, I think Colossians speaks to us today because for us, the world is so much smaller. Pull out your phone and you will find that you have the world at your fingertips. We have, we have a, an endless supply of information of what this culture or that religion or that faith believes. And there is this kind of, this kind of sense in which we have this pressure to just blend in with the dominant culture around us. And we live in a place in which if you just, you don't rebel against the empire, you can live fairly peacefully in this land. The only problem with living like that is that it's really hard to follow Jesus when your life looks like no different than anyone else around you. The other side and other pressure that they face in this church is that they face this pressure from Jewish Christians who are on the other side saying, step away from that life and, and separate yourself from the world completely. And so they are telling these new believers, they're saying, it's great that you are following Jesus. Now make your commitment to him complete by following all the rules and all the laws of the Torah. And so there is a sense in which they're being pulled away from the world altogether. And we live in a time where some of us are tempted in this way to pull away from the world altogether 
and that we begin to practice our faith as a way in which I'm going to do all of these things and just hang on for the moment that God would come back and take me into heaven. But the problem with that is that it's really hard to follow Jesus when you're running away from the world that he came, he died to save, and he will one day come back to restore. And so what Paul does in this letter is he looks at both of these extremes and he says, there's no hope in either of those options. And so this is the church that Paul writes to in Colossians, and this is what he says in chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, invisible. And look at this, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. To the crowd that is wanting to put their trust in the empire, Paul is saying, why would you do that? There's no hope there. Because all things, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. You can put your hope there, but you put your hope in a lesser thing. Verse 17, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. To the crowd that says, we just need to escape the world. He said, why would you put your hope in that life? Because at one point, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus, who lived here in this world, who came to die for this world and to save this world, and will one day return to restore and reconcile this world. Why would you put your hope in running away from the world when one day Christ is coming back to restore the world? And he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And look at this. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move, the hope, move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard that was proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul uses this kind of cosmic language. You hear him say all things, all things, all things. And what is he doing? He is is looking to both crowds and he's saying, don't be moved by your hope to either one of these options that the world gives you. But he says, remain firm. Do not let your hope be moved from the gospel. What he's doing in this cosmic language is he's giving the people a bigger vision of who Jesus is, a bigger image of what Jesus has done, a bigger image and picture of what Jesus will do. He's enlarging their minds and their eyes to see Jesus for who he really is and for what he's really done. You see, I think... This is my hunch. Tell me if 
Do you believe the same way? I believe. I believe that the one thing that the church needs most right now is not new strategies, not new flashy programs, not a new way to blend into the world, and not a new way to escape the world. I think what the church most needs now is a fresh, enlarging image and vision of who Jesus really is. And that's what Paul does here. He says, don't let your hope be moved this way. Don't let your hope be moved this way. Keep your hope in the gospel. Look at how grand and glorious Jesus is. Keep your hope there. There was an old uh, jazz musician by the name of Miles Davis, who at the end of his career, he had... Um, he no longer played facing the crowd. He would actually turn his back on the crowd and he would just play looking and facing the band. And some people thought that the reason he did this was because he was arrogant. And maybe, I, I don't know. But others, if you ask Miles Davis himself, he would say he saw himself as more of a conductor, wanting to give cues to the band. But still, I wonder. I wonder if it's possible to become so enamored by something, to become so fascinated by something, to become so consumed by something, that the crowds just become a distraction to you. That I wonder if you can become so consumed by something or someone that all you want to do is turn your back to the crowds and begin to just look at and love that one thing or that one person. You see, I think I think if we could get a clearer and bigger vision of who Jesus is, if we could catch just a glimpse of who he is, you see, I think we would stop caring so much about what the crowds say. I think we would have no appetite for celebrity or approval. I think we wouldn't be swayed by politics or false piety, and we wouldn't be moved by bullies, and we wouldn't be afraid to love. I think we would reorient our world toward him. We would look for our comfort from him. We would get our sense of identity from him. We would get our sense of value and values from him. We would, we would heal others because he did. We would be fearless in sharing the gospel because he was. We would fight the fight. We would fight that invisible fight against evil because he did. And we would live for a kingdom that he promised. And we would hold on to our dreams because he did. And we would keep our promises, lay down our lives, live for our friends, love our enemies, give to the poor, and we would shake up this world and turn it upside down because that's exactly what he did. But it starts not with placing our hope in this way or that way, but by saying, Jesus, would you give me a fresh vision of who you are? Because it's not about whether or not we will have hope. It's about whether or not our hope will be placed in someone or something that is big enough to move us in a way that the world desperately needs. But what would this look like? If we're to be moved by hope and we place our hope in Jesus, what would this look like? You know, Paul goes on, he starts off in this kind of lofty language, and then throughout the rest of the letter, he goes from this lofty language to now he gets very, very practical. He comes down to earth, and he starts telling the believers in Colossae, he says, this is how you're to live. Put to death these acts, clothe yourself with these characteristics and these traits, 
But then he also gives instructions to the family. He says, this is how you're to kind of order and structure your family. Wives, this is how you're to love your husbands. Husbands, this is how you're to love your wives. Uh, Fathers, this is how you're to raise and treat your children. He even gives instructions on how slaves are to relate with their masters and how masters are to relate with their slaves. But to the first the first readers of this letter, that would have seemed outrageous, the way that he called them to live, because he was calling them to live in a way that no other Roman was living. He was calling them to live in a way in which no one else in that land was currently living. And so at the end of his letter, after he gets very practical, you get to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 5, he says this, Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. And look at this. So that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul assumes that they would live in such a way that people would ask them questions. Paul assumes that they would live in such a way that it wouldn't be conventional wisdom, but they, they would live in such a way where that they would actually live questionable lives. They would actually live lives that are worth questioning. What does that look like for us today? I want to tell you this one story as we wrap up. I heard this story from an author that I enjoy reading, Mike Frost. And he told this story about this man that he met in San Francisco. This man was a Southern Baptist church planner who moved out to San Francisco with the hopes of planting a church there. And he kind of followed all the same strategies that every church planter was supposed to follow in that day. And that is that you get a facility, you get a worship team, a worship band, you invite as many people as you can, and you just work at getting as large of a crowd in one room as quickly as you possibly can. But in San Francisco, no one one was intrigued by that. But what this man had is he had a deep passion for shoes. And so what he decided to do is he actually decided to then go and open up a shoe store. And uh, if you walk into the shoe store, it would look like just about any other shoe store. You would see shoes on the walls, but then in the center of the room, in the center of the store, you would see this Chase Lounge. And when you walk into there, the man would come up to you and he would greet you just like any other shoe salesman. He would say, how are you? Good to see you. Is there anything I can help you find? And you may say back to him, no, it's okay, I'm just looking. And at that point, the man would say, well, if you'd like, I'm going to be sitting over here on this Chase Lounge. And if you've got time, and if you'd like, I invite you to come sit down with me and and just take a few moments and tell me about your story. He says, and I bet after telling me your story, I bet I can help you find the shoes that you're looking for. And so many people would kind of check their watch and say, okay. So they'd go and they'd sit down in the Chase Lounge, and then they would begin to tell them that some people would take five minutes, other people would take 25 minutes, but they would just begin telling them, this is where I grew up, my mom uh, lived here, my dad did this, my mom worked here, this is where I went to school. They would begin to tell them their whole life story. And the man would just listen. And after hearing the story, if you think the man in that moment would kind of do like a Jesus juke and be like, okay, well, let me tell you about Jesus. That's not what he does. Because when this man says he knows shoes, 
And when this man says, if after hearing your story, I bet I can help you find the shoes that you're looking for, he really does know what shoes they're going to like. So he'll go in the back and he'll grab a pair of shoes and he'll come out and he'll say, are these the shoes that you're looking for? And he would tell you. Now remember, they've just told me their whole life story, so many of them are very raw. And so at seeing the shoes, they will look at the shoes and they will say, those are exactly the shoes I was looking for. (laughs) To which the man will then help them check out at the register. And as he's closing out the transaction, he says almost every single time before they leave, they'll turn around and they'll say, who are you? And to which he will say, well, I'm just a shoe salesman and this is just a shoe store. No, like you're some kind of like life coach or like Buddhist guru, like who are you? And you say, well, I'm just a shoe salesman and this is just a shoe store. No, 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 like I mean this is so different. Who are you? He had been in that time invited to more weddings, to more dinners around the table, into people's homes, into people's lives, into their celebrations. He had more opportunities to tell people about Jesus as being a questionable shoe salesman than he ever did being a Southern Baptist church planter. We live in a world that is not intrigued by us enough. We live in a world that does not look at our lives and say, Who are you? Why do you live like that? But here's what I believe. I believe if if, if no one is looking at us and moved to ask us about the hope that we have, then maybe the hope that we have has not moved us far enough yet. But I also believe, I also believe that we live in a time in which we have a great opportunity. Because we live in a time in which beyond all of what we could ever ask, dream, or imagine, Jesus is the one in which we tether our lives to. And if we could just get a fresh view of Jesus, I believe, I believe the world would be turned upside down. My wife and I, we were talking about this this week. We've got a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And I said, you know, we've spent so much of our time, and if you're a parent, you know this, you spend so much of your time just trying to raise your kids to just be a functioning human, right? (laughs) And then you try to get them into this word. And then you come to realize that the person you're trying to get them connected to in this word is the one who's going to completely change their life. He's going to transform and reorient their life. He's going to cause them to do things that we as parents would be frightened that they would do. He's going to lead them to places that we have often told our kids, don't go to those places. And he's going to do all of that because we have told our kids, tether your life and your hope to this person named Jesus. At the end of my life, I hope with all that I have, that my kids would frighten me with the amount of hope that they have in the way that they live. That they would go to the places that we are told never to go to and that they would proclaim the name of Jesus loudly. And it is my hope that we would all be that same way as well.
Let me pray with you. Father God, Lord, I thank you for this church, this people. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity for us to be in this place. And God, we live in some curious times. We live in some challenging times. But Lord, I believe that you are far and above beyond all of this. So Jesus, I pray. I pray, God, that you would give us a fresh vision, a fresh anointing of your spirit. You would give us a clearer picture of who Jesus is and that that hope that we have in him would move us, God. Show us the the ways in which we ought to live that would spark curiosity. And in those moments, Lord, give us the words to say that would lead someone toward you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.